0: All right. Morning, everybody. Uh, My name is David Sorn. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. We are in the middle of a very important uh, series on what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality. Uh, We are in week two today, uh, and so we're going to be diving into the topic of sexuality and same-sex attraction. Uh, As I said last week, I've spent much of this past year uh, reading, preparing, uh, studying uh, for this uh, series, and there's so much that I want to share with you, but I know that I can't cover every single question and every issue as well. And keep in mind that more is coming. In fact, I think a lot of what we talk about today is going to bring up questions like, well, how do I talk to my family member about this, or how do I interact with my friend about this? Well, we're going to get to that in in, in week four, Uh, and even next week on identity is in many ways just a continuation of today's message. But even if we can't hit absolutely everything, I just think it's so important that Christians are equipped to talk about these pressing issues of our day. And I want you to feel knowledgeable on this issue, and I want you to be able to speak on it as mature Christians do. And we're called to communicate as Ephesians 4:15 says, by speaking the truth In love, Uh, truth and love are uh, symbiotic, right? They should be a package deal. Like you don't want to speak the truth in a way that isn't loving, and you you also don't want to lie in the name of love. No, we we speak the truth in love. Uh, Let me give you an idea of where we're going to be headed this morning. We're going to have four main areas of focus. Uh, Number one, we're going to look at what does the Bible say on this topic. And then we're going to look at the two most common objections to what the Bible says. Uh, And then, based on what the Bible says, we'll ask then, well, how should I live? And when I talk about that, that's going to bring up another objection for a lot of you. And I'll try my best to answer that as well. Okay, we're going to start in a minute here with the Bible, uh, and as we do, I want to let you know that if you disagree uh, with what I'm saying this morning, I want you to know this is not a talk uh, crafted around David's opinions or some political viewpoint or anything like that. My aim is just to simply and practically teach you what the Bible teaches on this particular uh, topic. And I urge you to remember that God's word challenges, challenges every culture differently, You know, when the missionaries brought the good news of Jesus to Africa and Asia and the island nations around the world, many of the people there passionately disagreed with it at first. They disliked that the Bible said, do not take revenge, or that it said, do not engage in polygamy. But we continued to share. Why? Because, well, God's word is the good news, and God's word is a higher law. It sits above every culture on the planet, including our own. Uh, As author Rachel Gilson says, She says, if God never says anything that contradicts us, and if we find ourselves in total alignment with a perfectly righteous, all-knowing being who comprehends all mystery, which is more likely? That we think just like him, or that we're missing something. Okay, so at some point, at some message, at some reading of the scriptures, somewhere, God's word is going to contradict what we normally think because he's above our thoughts. Uh, by the way, you can find uh, Rachel Gilson's uh, excellent book uh, on this topic and plenty of others on our gender and sexuality a resource page on our website, which I, I highly encourage you to check out. Let me make just one more quick preface uh, before we start reading our scriptures this morning. In all of the Bible passages we read today, the scriptures are talking about an action not a person, okay? And that differentiation is very important. We're gonna dive more deeply into that next week in our identity talk, but you are not what you feel, okay? That's not your identity. All right, so I'm gonna have a lot of these passages on the screen today, because we're going through a lot of them, uh, and we're gonna start in Genesis, uh, this time in chapter two of creation. Uh, In Genesis two, verse 18, says this. It says, "'The Lord God said,' It is not good for the man, so he's created Adam already, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then God intentionally and purposefully creates Eve because women are different from men. They're complementary to men. And they're also a match for procreation, which is a part of the creation narrative. In fact, in Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, go, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, The next passage that's relevant uh, to our discussion comes from the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, and this is a passage that is quite often misunderstood. So let's talk about this one so it feels less tricky. Uh, Here's the verse. Okay, to the men, the passage says, Leviticus 18, it says, "'Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that is detestable.'" There's a similar verse in chapter 20 that essentially says the same thing. Now, again, this is hard because this is so different for our culture, right? But we've got to walk through it, whether it's hard or not, because we want to see what does the Bible say. Now, if you've ever heard people debate on this issue, often this is the main passage of debate. And debaters will often say, okay, well, if you read the rest of Leviticus, there are verses in that book even right around this particular chapter that say things like don't eat rare meat or uh, don't wear clothes of two materials or don't get uh, a tattoo and so how is it possible that we say this verse still matters but those other verses don't matter Okay, that's a fair question, and I, and I, I would love to answer that. Uh, w- what I would say is, interpreting uh, Levitical law, which, by the way, is just a, a very small portion of this book, interpreting Levitical law is a bit more complex than that. Uh, it's not a lot more complex, but there is some complexity to understanding it. Because unlike the New Testament, parts of the Levitical law in the Old Testament were written specifically for the Jewish people of that time. And therefore, they're not applicable to us as modern Christians. Let me give you an easy example that will make a ton of sense. So actually, the majority of the book of Leviticus is about animal sacrifices for forgiveness. Well, those verses are not applicable to us anymore in that Jesus, the New Testament says, was our final sacrifice. The same is true... For the purely civic or cultural aspects of Leviticus, in fact, many of the unique food laws, for instance, that you can find in there were to keep the Jews as a separate and a unique and a lasting society. But when Jesus came, he declared for us all foods clean. Okay, so why do we still obey then some passages like this one in Leviticus? Well, here's why. It's because the Old Testament is divided into three uh, major categories, Old Testament law, that is. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil law, those are sort of the governing practical laws for the Jewish nation of that time. The ceremonial laws, those were the ones for the animal sacrifice. And then the moral laws are the only ones that Christians still follow today. These are things like the Ten Commandments or laws that are applicable to sex or how we respect our parents and so on. But why do we do that? Why do we still follow those ones? Why not you know, push all of it out? Well, we still follow those because God's character and God's view on morality, on what is right, what is wrong, it does not, in fact, it cannot change. And so those things are still applicable to us today. Now I want you to actually grab a Bible for our next passage uh, because this is going to be the most comprehensive passage. So uh, we're in Romans chapter 1. If you're using a Bible here, they are in front of you. Uh, we're going to be on page 768. Uh, this is from the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early Christian church, and he's writing about 30 years after Jesus resurrected. Kind of the broader context of this chapter of Romans chapter 1 is that people know God exists, but they intentionally are denying him so that they can pursue their pleasures and god says okay and he sort of gives them over to their pleasures which is not a good thing okay so romans chapter one i'm going to start at verse 24 so if you find the small 24 uh you'll be in the right spot okay it says therefore god gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another Okay, Uh, we we also see the Bible uh, talk about same-sex sexual desires uh, as sinful in 1 Corinthians 6. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, You can read more about it uh, in Genesis 19. That's the Sodom and Gomorrah passage. It's in Judges 19. It's also in the book of Jude. I I think it's also worth just briefly mentioning. uh, Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, Jesus never talked about same-sex attraction and so he would be okay with it in a loving relationship and i would say well it's true that jesus never explicitly talked about it although i would argue that he implicitly talked about it because jesus condemns a sexual immorality which is all forms of sex outside heterosexual marriage but it doesn't matter even if he didn't explicitly talk about it because as christians we interpret all of the bible as authoritative and not just jesus's words. And besides, Jesus didn't talk about a lot of things, right? Jesus never talked about rape or incest, and that doesn't mean that he approves of it just because he didn't talk about it. Okay, this is a lot. I understand that this is heavy. Um, Let's just, as a church, let's just acknowledge that some of these passages are really hard for people because it's personal, or it's very personal for your family. And maybe you even have a number of, of objections to what the Bible is saying here, and I just want to say, that's okay. Uh, this is a place where we can search for truth together. It's a place where you can ask questions. That's one of the reasons that house groups is so important to us. And so what I want to do now is I want to move to our second major focus, which is to look at the two most common objections to what the Bible teaches on this. Because I don't think that it's fair to just read the passages and say, well, that's what God says have a great day, let's go watch the NFL playoffs, right? I think that we need to look at these objections and try and faithfully answer them. I want you to face up to it, I want us to look at it, and I want you to be able to intelligently and graciously respond to even the objections of the day. You know, when we talk about objections, what's really interesting to me is 10 or 15 years ago, I would say almost all of the main objections I heard to the Bible's teaching on this uh, were from people who would try to say, no, 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 what the Bible actually means, and they would go through the passage and they would say, well, if you look at the Hebrew, it could mean, and they go to the next one, they say, you know, if you understand all the variations of the Greek word, it could mean, now, I almost never hear that argument anymore. Uh, It's almost vanished from our culture. And I think because over time it was just, it was almost silly to have to go through nine different passages and say that all nine of them actually meant something else. And so most of those uh, people have now just settled on saying, I guess I don't really fully believe the Bible anymore. And so the main objections of our day aren't actually arguments about the scriptures anymore. If you're interacting with people on this subject, you'll know that the main objections of our day are actually catchphrases that have really ingrained themselves into our cultural imagination. So much so that when people think about this topic, these are the phrases that win the day. Let's start with the first one. Here's the first main objection. It is, love is love. Okay, I'm assuming you're familiar with this phrase. If for some reason uh, you're not, um, the idea of love is love is that two people, they're saying that if two people love each other and they're not hurting anyone, then what's wrong with that, right? Love is love. It doesn't doesn't matter who's doing the loving if they're both consensual parties. Okay, um, but here's the problem with that. No one actually believes that love is love, that all consensual love is okay. The truth is everybody draws a moral boundary somewhere, even on love. Let me, let me show you what I mean. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Can, would you say it's okay if four people want to get married to each other if they're all in love? What about a 40-year-old and a 14-year-old? Can they get married if they both love each other? Or is it okay for a brother and a sister to get married if they're both consensually in love? You see, how we can't determine if something is morally right just because people are in love. We get a helpful example, actually, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this, to the christians he says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud but shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this okay so here here is a man who is sleeping with his stepmom and it's consensual and they're in love but does the presence of love make everything morally right? And I'm going to guess that almost all of you are going to say no. Some of those examples that you listed, even though they're in love, I would say no, that one is not okay, that's not right. And I would say, why? Tell me why it's not right. Well, if you're drawing a boundary somewhere, why do you draw the boundary where you draw the boundary? And I find when I talk to people that most people haven't actually thought deeply on that it's just it's maybe a mix of emotions of what they feel honestly for most people they're just influenced by our culture's current tastes but the problem is our culture continues to change and change and change its boundaries of what is morally acceptable love i can tell you we are almost certainly going to be debating the morality of polygamy or polyamorous relationships over the next 10 years in America. And while the co- culture's boundaries for love continue to just rapidly change in front of our eyes, the Bible's boundary for a romantic and sexual love is fixed. It doesn't change. Because of God's wisdom, right? because of his creation design. And even if someone has crossed that line and they're on the other side of that line, it doesn't matter if they're still in love. Or even if they're faithful. Author Sam Allberry says it this way. He says, consistency and faithfulness while sinning. So while on the other side of the line, in no way diminishes the sin. Okay, but let's say that you, you even agree that romantic and sexual love has to have a boundary. And if you're going to pick a boundary, you might as well pick God's boundary and not the cultures that is going to always change. What do you do, though, if you personally still feel this way and you have these desires? And that leads us to what is the second main objection of our time, and that is this, but I was born this way. Now, we, we talked through this fairly extensively last week in our gender ex- discussion, but I think it's worth noting that because Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, all of us are born in a fallen state. We're born with a sinful nature. And what that means is that our minds, our desires, even our actions are predisposed to sin. And therefore, our feelings, our desires, they can't actually be trusted. They can't tell us who we are because those desires are broken. And besides, our predispositions, they don't excuse our actions. So like if someone is born uh, with a predisposition towards alcoholism, which scientifically many people are, that doesn't give them the right to then go out and get drunk every day. And we're going to talk next week about how our sexual desires cannot be your identity. Whom you feel sexually attracted to is not who you are. It's a desire you have, sure, but it's not the core of who you are. And when people say, but I was born this way, why do we then proceed to describe our feelings? Like, if we're going to say, I was born this way, why do we not then reference the physical bodies that we were born with? Because our feelings can change all of the time. But our bodies are fixed, and our bodies were designed sexually for the opposite sex. We were born that way. One of the things that I love about Christianity is that it has such a high view of our bodies, See to, to many secularists today the body is just like a bag of bones but the real you they say who you really are is your mind it's in your feelings and you know do whatever you need to do to your body to make your feelings feel right but God's word says no 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 you are a unified being your soul composed of mind spirit and the body and all of those things are you and who you are I also think it's really important to point out that this I was born this way argument has been such a strong and compelling argument for so many people over the last generation, probably 25 years, but I suspect that if I were to give this message again in five years, that this wouldn't be, just as the scriptural arguments aren't anymore, I suspect this won't be one of the main objections. In fact, I'd even go as far as saying, I think it may be politically incorrect to even say, I was born this way, 10 years from now. And let me tell you why. I've done a lot of reading on this in the last year, but over the last 12 to 24 months, those who are writing and speaking about gender have had an incredible amount of influence in the LGBTQ plus world regarding the concept of fluidity. So in gender, uh, fluidity is the idea that your gender is not fixed. It's fluid that it doesn't have to stay the same and tons of young people are attracted to this new idea this is why i hear many people saying that the number of young people who are identifying as non-binary uh, if you were here last week we just said that's someone who doesn't feel they are male or female and it might even change over time That the number of people that are identifying as non-binary is going to fast outpace even the number of people who identify as transgender Because young people are so attracted to the openness, the vagueness of fluidity. And the new emphasis on fluidity is starting to impact even sexuality. This is why you're going to hear a lot about this in the coming years. Because the idea that a person was born with a fixed sexuality, like a sexual orientation, is just beginning to go out of style in our culture. The culture is going to increasingly tell you that you should be willing to consider your sexuality as fluid over time, not as something permanently fixed. Uh, Let me prove to you that this change is already happening. Of right in front of our eyes. So a look at this chart about women, for example. And so this particular chart is uh, broken down by generations, and then the different colors on each bar represent how someone would describe their sexual identity. So the middle uh, section, that is the dark gray, so this is women, that would be women who identify as lesbian, and the purple would be women who identify as bisexual. So If you go all the way to the baby boomers, there really isn't even much of a difference between the number of people who identify as lesbian or bisexual. But here's where you can see this new thinking really play out. Look over to Gen Z, right? This is the generation affected by this new sort of philosophy. And in Gen Z, in that middle gray, actually only 4% of all of Gen Z women identify as lesbian. But 20%, that's one in five, Of all Gen Z women identify their sexuality as bisexual. In fact, there was a recent study of high school students. And in high school students, 25% of high school students now identify themselves as sexually fluid. And so the idea of, I was born this way and only this way, is falling out of favor. In fact, some in the secular culture might even consider I was born this way as narrow-minded. Okay, why does that matter? Why why does it matter to talk about that sort of intramural debate there? It matters because thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Americans have made their same-sex sexual desires, their identity, everything about who they are because the culture convinced them you were born this way this is who you are and now that same culture is saying actually that's not really true because sexuality is going to change over time and so hear me on this the culture is going to change its mind and change its mind and change its mind and change its mind because it has no fixed morality and so i just urge you if you're trying to figure out your life anchor on to something higher Okay, the word of God is a rock in ever changing turbulent waters. And if you do that, you say, I just, I get it, this is changing like crazy. I just want to believe in something solid. If you do that, I think the next question is what do you do if you, practically, what do you do if you are a Christian who is experiencing personally the temptations of same sex attraction? And this is our third major focus for the morning. How then should I live? Firstly, I would say to you, please remember that the Bible clearly teaches that to be tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted many times, and the Bible says he never sinned. It's only sinful when we act upon our temptations in lust or in sexual acts. But what about your desires? I think for a lot of people, I think what many Christians ask is will god change me will my same sex attraction go away and i would say i don't know i don't know i do know that the bible teaches that the more we obey god the more we grow in god our sinful desires they weaken in their dominance over our lives but will they go away I think if we're going to better understand that question and it's an important question i i I think it's helpful to look at some comparisons of other sins that we fight for instance i know plenty of people in this church who have with god's help fought against the strong foe of alcoholism and i've had many conversations with people over the years as a pastor who say you know what when i came to christ jesus christ influenced me changed me so dramatically that in the 10 years since I've become a Christian, I haven't even desired a single drink. That's what God did in my life. And at the same time as a pastor, I talked to a lot of other people who would say, yeah, it's, it's a temptation still. It's totally a temptation for me. But through my faith in God, through my recovery program, through my daily surrender to him right now, I'm living in sobriety and freedom. And I praise God for that. Okay, that's how God works. But sometimes God does provide radical healing and radical change. And those are moments we we glorify God because he's doing something miraculous. And for whatever reason, God is up to some of that in America right now. One of the things that's kind of fascinating to me is some of our best Christian thinkers and writers in America right now have this exact story. Uh, Rosar- Rosaria Butterfield is a great example of this. Or Rebecca McLaughlin is brilliant. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry—they uh, were in lesbian relationships. They came to Christ, found out about Jesus, and now all three of them actually are married to a man. And before you go, oh come on, well, let's, let's look at the Word of God here. First Corinthians chapter six. What does God say? He says, "Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived." neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor the greedy nor the dr- he's going after everybody okay nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god look at this verse 11 and that is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god now, what you need to know contextually is Corinth, where he's writing this letter, was like the Las Vegas of the ancient times, but like way worse. Okay, And so Paul is literally writing this letter to a group of people, many of which had personally engaged in same-sex relationships. But now, because of their walk with Jesus, he's saying, that is what some of you were. And we look at the list of all those other sins and we go like, oh yeah, God can change that in your life. But here we're so apt to say like, oh, he wouldn't do that. He can, because he's God, okay? And so God absolutely can take a desire away. He can change our desires. But sometimes he doesn't. And I think it's just as important to biblically understand that. You know, later Paul writes another letter to the Corinthians, and he tells them that he has this thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan. Now, we don't know exactly what that was. Some scholars think it was an illness or an ailment, uh, maybe a sin that he can't get past. But Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And so Paul's actually praising God here for his remaining difficulties, because they will actually end up being the reason that he presses deeper into God. Like the thorn itself, it's clearly not a good thing, but God allows it to remain because growth is going to come from it. And so understand this. God uses both of these methods to grow us in Christ. Sometimes he removes our difficulties. And sometimes he teaches us dependence on him in our difficulties. And both of those ways are ways that God will mature you in Jesus Christ. And I think understanding this is really, really, really important to understanding biblical teaching on this subject. Because otherwise we're left with what is like almost more like a prosperity gospel. Like, well, if God loved me, he would change me. I, that's not good biblical teaching. You know, a number of years ago, I remember seeing on social media, somebody I knew uh, came out as gay on Facebook. And I remember reading the status and just feeling his pain when he wrote this. He wrote, For years I've been praying for God to change my same-sex desires. Through many tears, through many long nights, I've prayed and I've asked asked him to take them away. But today, those desires still come. And so now, I'm coming out as a gay man. And I remember reading that and just thinking, oh man, I just wanted to be there and have the conversation. And one of the things I so, so gently wanted to say is just because our sinful desires remain Doesn't mean that we can embrace them. It doesn't mean that they can become our identity. Because we're always going to have sinful desires. I mean, even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter seven, he cries out to God, kind of in frustration and anguish, and he says, What I want to do, I do not do, but I keep doing what I hate to do. We're not going to be perfect. This side of heaven, those desires remain, and those desires are not our identity. Even our remaining sin, it is an opportunity for us to press deeper into our dependence and reliance on God. When we are weak, he is strong. Okay, but practically then, what do you do? If if your desires, even if God is sure lessening them along the way, what if they don't change? What if you never feel attraction to the opposite sex? Then what? I would say that you should pursue a holy life of following Jesus Christ like every other Christ follower, but because you would be choosing to not act on your same-sex desires, you would remain single. But that then brings us to our added objection. Because as soon as I mention the word single, a lot of our hearts say this. We say, but doesn't God want me to be happy? That can't be his answer. Doesn't he want me to be happy? And the first reason we feel that way is because we have made a God out of sex in this country. And I would even say that we have made an idol out of marriage in the church. Marriage is not the goal of the Christian life. It's not even the goal of the next life, right? Jesus says in heaven, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And let us remember that two of our great heroes in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul, were both what? Single. See, life without sexual intimacy or marriage is not a deficient life. But life without a deep and faithful relationship to Christ is a deficient life. And secondly, I think we wrongly think that singleness for the same-sex attracted would be too much to ask Because the rest of us wrongly think that our own Christian walks are just so much easier than that, and it wouldn't be fair to put that upon someone. Author Sam Albury, who lives as a single Christian, who still experiences temptations for same-sex attraction, says it this way. I want you to look at his words from his perspective. He says, Ever since I have been open about my own experiences of same-sex attraction, a number of Christians have said something like this, the gospel must be much harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is, the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily, without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it's likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. Because the truth is, the Bible speaks strongly, not just against same-sex relationships, but you know what? It also speaks strongly against materialism. It speaks strongly against gluttony. It speaks strongly against not giving 10% of your money away. But the problem is, we just kind of neatly excuse those verses, but then we look to the same-sex attraction and say, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to obey this. Well, what about us? Right. The truth is we all need to trust God in all things because God is worthy in all things and he's worth it in all things. But I think the reason that we're still back asking this question of, but doesn't God want me to be happy, is because we're stuck back in Romans chapter 1. We forgot that happiness is not found in the creation, it's found in the creator. I I, I can't stop thinking about John chapter 6. These last two weeks in this series, John chapter 6, Jesus gives a really hard teaching, really difficult. And a number of his followers, they leave. They walk away they say, this is too hard for us. I'm not following Jesus if this is what he's going to say. And then Jesus looks to his disciples, and he says to them, you're not going to leave too, are you? And Peter looks right at him, and he says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Jesus Christ is so worthy. He is the treasure in the field that you sell everything to go get. Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price that you sacrifice everything for. You give up everything to get him because Jesus Christ is the one who came and died for your sin. And so you walk away from your sin so you can walk with him because he is the way to true joy. And he is the truth that never changes. And he is your life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you uh, for your word, even though it's hard, even though it sounds so foreign in our culture today. God, give us the strength to trust you over all the objections. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is in this struggle right now, that they would know your grace, they would know your love, your forgiveness, and that they would feel your strength and empowerment as they walk out on your path. It's in your name we pray. Amen.